My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. My friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom coming to you from Sheridan, Wyoming, Triton Theater for another Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Man, we've had a great run. I'm so excited to keep going. I have a great guest on the show today. I've known this guy for a long, long time. And in the time that I've known him, he has just exploded. This is my friend, John Rodolini. Hello, John. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? It's going great. It's going great. And uh, I'm going to introduce you to everybody. John is an illusionist, a mentalist, uh, several other things with it under that umbrella, but in the whole uh, in the whole act of being a magician. So um, and John is currently uh, a Vegas magician and it has toured all kinds of places and uh, gotten a lot of opportunity to travel even internationally. I was really lucky to get John right now because he's about ready to head to Colombia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I get to Man. dust off uh, nothing but linen and drink plenty of coffee. <laughs> so, so tell me about this. How did you get like, it went from like, yeah, John does magic a little bit. And then no, John's playing Vegas now. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Like a lot of people, I did magic as a kid. Um, there's a really great uh, stage illusionist that still works with big cats in a, a wonderful and humane way uh, named Jay Owenhouse. You know, Jay would come to Sheridan, Wyoming during the summer times. He would bring in semi-trucks, build a full stage in the middle of like a basketball court with trusses and lighting and everything oh that you need to do a Vegas-style big illusion show, like people disappearing, motorcycles teleporting, Here's a person in a box. Now it's a tiger, Shazam, the whole thing. Complete uh -huh. with really, really cool 80s and 90s magic-y soundtrack. Oh, yes. So, like good yeah, synthesizer yeah. and like. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. I still okay. have a, a soft spot for Hello by the Cars. <laughs> for the, uh, yep. the youngsters watching, for the youths, take a moment and get on the YouTube and uh, <laughs> treat yourself to, to that and whatever else it recommends. But. So uh, that was kind of my first foray into magic. And as a little kid about that time in the, the mid-90s, magic started showing up more and more on TV. You know, we saw folks like David Copperfield doing those annual specials where nice. something really cool would happen. And then you'd see guys like Lance Burton or Franz Harari 
Right. Uh, Franz, when we were kids, made uh, the space shuttle disappear in front of a live audience, which was really right. cool. So there was a time that magic kind of came back into popularity and it came with some extra spandex and some big hair. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I picked it up as a kid. And mm-hmm. like most school kids, you know, if you have a firefighter or a veterinarian or a doctor come to campus or to school when you're little, for about two weeks, everyone wants to be whatever yeah, that right. career is. <laughs> so that's kind of what happened. I wanted to learn some tricks. I was like, okay, cool. I have some card tricks now that I can entertain friends with. And when you first learn magic and can successfully do a magic trick, even if it's small, you kind of start this chain reaction of events. It's kind of like baking. You can read the recipe. And if you follow a recipe well, even if your cooking skills are not great, you can end up with a a decent like cake, for example. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Right. If you learn a magic trick, you can follow the recipe. You can pull it off well enough to fool somebody. You get this really cool reaction in that in just about anybody, no matter the age, no matter background, where in the world they come from, language they speak, you can see this little like five-year-old inside light up for a minute. And it's really, really neat. And mm. you all uh, listening, if you've seen a magic trick or you've, you've had that wow moment, that feeling's really great. And when you learn how magic works, you lose that, that feeling because you know the, the secrets. But seeing that happen in other people uh, is a really wonderful and addictive thing turns right out. right yeah right. like that like that's a that's a thing where just the audience uh, you know believing in the unbelievable for just a moment or just like yeah. completely not trusting their own senses for a second mm-hmm. that, that's fantastic yeah it's it's the the chief export of what i do is sharing smiles and and a little bit of kind of childlike wonder with people and you'll hear a lot of magicians use that childlike you know, wonder or a phrase like that because it's the the easiest way to describe it. You started doing magic as a kid. You got inspired to do magic by other people. You you found it was something that people found useful and you're like, wait a minute, no, I can actually turn this into a career. So how did you, like, I'm just wondering because I'm an actor. My path from there would be like, okay, so it's like uh, LA or Broadway. That's where you're going. How, How did you get to the Broadway of magic? Vegas. Yeah. We're in college and I had been entertaining friends, entertaining family would get asked to do little kid birthday parties for, you know, reasonable sums of money. Uh, Continued to do magic while working blue collar and white collar jobs through, Mm -hmm. through college, post college, to your point to do LA or New York. I went, I want to be in entertainment. Magic is a thing I can do. Let's go do that. I put uh, resumes out all over cities in that kind of range in Chicago too. lots of indeed.com monster.com and yep. <laughs> uh, called a friend who was an acquaintance used to be a magician that then started this entertainment company and said, Hey, do you have anything, anything in Vegas? No, sorry, man. Like best uh, of luck to you. Cool. Fast forward two weeks. I get a call. Hey, uh, are you still looking for a job? Ooh. Yeah, what's what's going on? So his um, director of operations had abruptly left. <laughs> he said, I have this opening. What do you know about operations? And I, I know how to balance <laughs> a checkbook. I knew how to like do a schedule. I knew how to print checks, but was not an accountant. And right. 
Um, but I was like, hey, you know, realistically, I, I've done some operation stuff. Like, full disclosure, I'm not going to be your guru. And he said, great, because I don't have the budget to pay for a guru. So how about you meet me in the middle on what I can pay you, which was, you know, enough to get by in Vegas. But And I will give you a little bit of schooling and a little bit of patience, you oh. know, to, to see if you can do this. Okay. Cool. So packed my, my tiny... 1999 Chevy Malibu up with everything. <laughs> and I moved to Vegas with a blow up mattress and a, a sleeping bag. Get to town New Year's Eve, I think 2016. Walk onto a stage on Fremont Street where Blues Traveler, an artist that we managed, was about to play. Oh my God. working for the weekend is happening on stage. We pass and I'm immediately in entertainment land, like Alice in Wonderland, full stop. So that's how I is. got here. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's been <laughs> eight years that I've gotten to tour all over the world now. Oh, man. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's that. amazing. And heading out to Columbia next week. And how long are you there? Yes. Uh, I will be in Columbia for probably 24 to 48 hours. And then I am uh, joining some great folks on a uh, cruise line, Princess Cruises, for a oh, two-week yeah. trek through the Panama Canal in South America. So, uh Oh man. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. Sounds rough. Yeah. I I don't envy you one bit. So this I I love when this happens on this show. Sometimes there is just a an amazing connection. Like I I asked you if you wanted to do the show and you're like, yeah, let's do it. And I came up with a topic. I'm like, oh, I bet we could talk about stuff like that. But hearing that origin story, John, and just how you treat your art, I think you are going to love this topic. Sweet. Let me ask you this. What's the largest house you've ever played to? Ooh, that's a toughie. Like a ballpark figure. Uh, 19,000 people. About 19,000? That's huge. Yeah. Jeez, where was that? Yeah. T-Mobile Arena uh, in Las Vegas oh. uh, for venue size. Uh, audience mm-hmm. wasn't quite that big there. Um, and then some other professional sports stadiums. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Well, frankly, COVID did take a lot of things away from us. And I really don't mm-hmm. want to start this with a bummer, but I'm going to let you know about something that the world lost, although only a select few might be really bummed about it. Now, this is directly from the website of one of the most significant cultural events in Europe. Nearly 400 years ago, the history of the passion play began. The plague raged in many parts of Europe and did not spare Oberammergau either. We're going to say that word a few times so you know what it means. Oberammergau. In 1633, the Oberammergau villagers promised to perform the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ every 10th year, insofar as no one was to die of the plague anymore. The villagers were answered by God, and therefore in 1634, the first Passion Play took place. The promise has been kept until today. 2020... The Passion Play had to be postponed for two years due to the coronavirus pandemic. The 42nd Oberammergau Passion Play will now take place from May 14th to October 2nd, 2022. Cool. As I traditionally do, I usually start with a question, so I'll ask you this. John, have you ever attended a Passion Play? I will see your attended a passion play and raise you. I have been in passion plays. Yes. Oh, perfect. Yes. (laughs) Where did you do those? So I I was raised and still am Catholic. So Holy Mm -hmm. Name Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Lovely Sheridan, Wyoming. 
Mm -hmm. So let me give you a little history. All right. To start with, passion plays usually date back all the way to medieval times when guilds would present cycle plays. And we've talked about these on this program before, but I'll summarize here. If you really want to hear a lot more about cycle plays, uh, we talk about them pretty extensively in episode five titled Secrets. But here I'll just remind you that Cycle plays were generally outdoor plays that meant to reenact either huge sections of the Bible or the Bible in its entirety <laughs> over the course of various religious festivals. I mean, these festivals would occur over a series of days or weeks, so it wasn't like the plays were so ambitious that it all had to fit into one performance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember first reading about those and they're like, we're going to tell the whole story of the Bible. And you're like, all of it? <laughs> it's just... That's it. You, you know, you talk about ambition. That's it. Right. So, yeah, they stretched on for days. But, of course, one of these stories is what we now know as the passion of Jesus Christ. You know, when Christ is put on trial, convicted, sentenced to execution, crucified, and eventually returns from the grave to ascend to heaven. Okay? So, I think, yeah, I think everybody kind of agrees that's what that is. Yeah. So, bear with me as I do my best to succinctly summarize just what effect this story is to have on its audience, as there are many reasons why the passion is so important to Christians. And as an illusionist, you can probably really relate to this. Perhaps. As though it's like, you know, yeah, I'm making something disappear. People are in disbelief that it's actually gone, but they can't see it. So there's something on, on a, a sensual and a visceral level that's happening. Now, as far mm -hmm. as, you know, the passion is concerned, what we have here is the fulfillment of a prophecy. Okay. Yep. So if something is said and it actually happens, that validates the holiness of the prophecy, the prophet, and the deity. Sure yeah. thing. Okay. <laughs> Narratives of suffering, endurance, and eventual salvation all stir viewers of passion plays. I mean, even if you're not devout, it's hard to deny when you see a, a story about a religious figure that's well done. It stirs you up, right? Everybody uh, loves an underdog. That's right. Christ died for our sins and did it willingly. Thus, the emotional response should inspire viewers to strengthen their resolve to live better lives. And this has been done in church as a, as a, a part of Holy Week services forever because people really respond mm -hmm. well to symbolism. I mean, I know as a kid, I, I was raised Lutheran. And I remember attending a Good Friday service, and they'd read like a particular section of, of the story of, you know, the night that Christ died on Good Friday. Mm -hmm. And at certain points, they'd stop the narrative, and something else would be taken off of the altar, or maybe off of the, the pulpits or something like that. And mm -hmm. by the end of the night, all the lights were out, you're sitting there in the house, and you're looking out at, at just this empty, naked setting. And... I remember as a kid, uh, I, I got to credit my mother for uh, giving me the, one of the best explanations for this, for, you know, a young kid who's still just like trying to figure out what religion even is, you know, I go, mom, why are they doing all this? And she goes, well, this is what it would be like if Christ never existed. It was like, Ooh, okay. That's powerful. And so like, you know, impressionable yeah. seven, seven year old me, I'm like, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Now, after the medieval era, cycle plays heavily influenced theater in both the Spanish and English renaissances. But to talk specifically about passion plays, we have to start in Germany in 1633. So we're going to say it together. Oberammergau. Uh, Oberammergau. That's it. You got it. Okay. All right. Now, the story goes 
that plague raged through Europe in the 1630s and in 1633 in particular. Like there was a region that was very close to the town of Oberammergau that had two residents that remained, a husband and wife in the entire region. Everybody else had been taken out by the plague. Now Oberammergau was spared until a man named Kaspar Schiesler came home from his Ooh. summer job. Yeah, isn't that great? Kaspar Schiesler came home from his summer job as a day laborer in a nearby town to celebrate the consecration of the newly built church. He brought the plague with him and didn't know it. Oh, ouch. Right? This was September 24th. He died four days later. And from then on until eight, uh, October 28th, 81 people in the village died. So, Ow. yeah, struck through them. Now, two of the leaders of the village got together and bowed to God that if no one else would die from the plague, the village would put on a play about the Passion of the Christ every year. Mm. And guess what happened? <laughs> Everyone else lived. They lived. That's right. Wow. Of course, All right. Yep. Okay. So, of course, this story is exaggeration. Omer Ober Omergau did have plague deaths before then, and they accumulated, but the vow to do the play still remains somewhat true. And, and I guess Casper Schiesler may never have existed at all. <laughs> it's too bad. That's a fun name to say. Right. Casper Schiesler. <laughs> so thus the first Oberammergau passion play was put on in 1634 and was done every year until 1680 when it became an event that occurred every 10 years with just a few exceptions. <laughs> I just love that. They're like four uh, you know, 46 years. We'll just do it every yeah. year. And then somebody just went, damn it, guys, this is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, not something you can zoom too easily, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's let's just do it every 10. How about that? And then and that'll be, you know, bigger. Yeah. <laughs> now, the entire scale of the show has grown to require upwards of 2,000 cast and crew members. Wow. <laughs> most of whom come from the village itself. Participants must either have been born in the village or they must have lived in the village for at least 20 years. So here's, a, here's another quote from the, from the uh, website. In order to nurture the talent for the passion play, there is heavy emphasis within the community and education in drama, choirs, and orchestras in order to train each generation for the performances of the future. So it is completely ingrained into the economy and culture of the town. Like, this is what keeps Amazing. our city running. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. And ro roles ran in the family. So like, if you wow. say... Yeah, so like if you were Jesus, then your son is probably going to play Jesus in about 10, 20 years or something like that. Wow. Right? Or if you were the uh, master conductor who conducted the orchestra, mm -hmm. well, that is definitely going to be passed down to your progeny. The theater itself, it's a big outdoor amphitheater, can accommodate almost 5,000 audience members. Amazing. But, yeah. The total runtime of the production is six hours. Oh, I hope they have intermissions. Oh. oh, yeah. Yeah, check this out. Two halves of about two and a half hours each and an hour-long meal in between. And you can eat there or they have all kinds of little restaurants and little cafes around the, around the theater that you can just go enjoy yourself. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically just a big open-air stage with a roofed auditorium. So if it rains, the players get wet, but the people stay nice and comfy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now... 
I, I love this. When I was researching this, uh, I found Google reviews that from, you know, users that include words like nice Christian theater or big theater. <laughs> I mean, there are others that are really, really very flowery reviews about, you know, this really sure. changed. I, I got a lot out of it, but yeah. And while it primarily is the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, several other stories from the Bible are performed and musical interludes are mixed in. Okay. Kind of fun. And if anyone yeah. is interested, like I said, the play runs this year from May 14th to October 2nd. Now, plays like Oberammergau started popping up all over Europe. And they're done all over the place now. I mean, wherever anybody has sent a Christian missionary, you can guarantee that somewhere nearby a passion play has been established. Yep. So let's talk about them in America. All right. <laughs> if anybody listened to my last episode uh, on vampire musicals, we talk a lot about when you bring things over from Europe and turn them into Americanized versions they don't always have the best success. <laughs> <laughs> so one that people know a lot about of, and John, you might've known about this when we were growing up, because it's only three hours away from here, is the Black Hills Passion Play in Spearfish. Did you know about this? I, I now that you mention it, I do recall hearing about the Passion Play in Spearfish, South Dakota, yes. Okay, okay. So you've never been to it then, I suppose. Uh, if I have, I don't remember it. And okay. that's not a nothing against the nope. fine people at the uh, Black Hills Passion Play. <laughs> well, yeah. I have been to it. And I tell you, you would have remembered it. Okay. okay. So let me say this. The Black Hills Passion Play, uh, it, it, it was derived from a passion play that was put on in the German town of Leuenen. It's spelled L-U-E-N-E-N, Leuenen Passion Play. And monks had been performing this specific passion play since the year 1242. Wow. Yeah, to educate the illiterate poor residents of the town. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, Public the, service. Yep, exactly. Now, sometime in 1932, a medical student named Joseph Meyer performed in the play, and he was seen by an American from Pittsburgh. And this... American told Meyer that he should bring the play back to the States. Now, wanting to escape the ugly political climate that was 1930s Germany. <laughs> yep. Yep. Meyer took the advice and brought the show to Pittsburgh and titled it the Leunin Passion Play. From there, the show gained such a following that Meyer soon saw reason to take the show on the road. And here, I'm going to state a few things about Meyer that I think are actually fairly admirable. First of all, as a devout Roman Catholic, his faith is very closely tied to this business venture. Okay. Okay. So it's not something he's trying to exploit for money. He just goes, this is something that I love and I want to make it my life's work. Do what you love. Absolutely. Like I said, he didn't really start this to make piles of money, but in his eyes, the U.S. had a significant division of church and state. So like Germany's schools all seem to have an element of religion worked into formal education. Okay. Not so not so much in the public schools of United States. So therefore, he wanted to bring the inspiring story of Jesus to as many people as possible to educate and entertain about the life of Christ. All right. Now, I do have to state here at this point that I I am not as spiritual as a lot of people, <laughs> but I am not trying to mock any faith throughout this podcast. I am not. 
Um, I will say I will doubt some of the motives of some of the people we're going to talk about. Fair, fair. Okay. Now, back to Joseph Meyer. After touring for many years, became somewhat exhaustive traveling by rail with the 250 plus performers, many more crew members, and all manner of animals, including sheep, camels, and horses. He'd just be carting these around on the train. Sounds like a circus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Now, uh, they started to look for a permanent settlement where he could still make the story available to as many as possible. So this is where we arrive in Spearfish, South Dakota in 1938. Well, for one wow. thing, yeah, Spearfish is just a beautiful little town. I love it. Um, but they have a huge amount of international tourist traffic since it's just a short drive from Mount Rushmore. Um... Everybody's going. So, you know, they start putting up notices that, hey, there's going to be this great passion play. He began construction on an outdoor amphitheater that could seat up to 6,000. And in some cases, I'm like, it's 7,000 or maybe eight. But the stage was actually like three city blocks long. <laughs> and for the... Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Um, I remember seeing it, though, because <laughs> the actual like uh, facade that they put up was very poorly designed, in my opinion. Oh, just no. Like, just like little triangles, like sitting on top of one another is very, very rudimentary, not very colorful. The color all came from the costumes. But uh, yeah, they had a, a three-block-long stage. And oh, and the, for the crucifixion scene, the actor playing Christ would literally drag his cross up to a small hillock behind the stage which was in full view of the audience where the gruesome scene would occur i mean cool this was so neat john like the first couple hours of the play you're you're like you're watching jesus play with kids and and uh, the cast was comprised mostly of residents of spearfish or other nearby towns including up to 100 children and oldest trick in the book you're gonna get some you want to sell tickets you put a bunch of kids in your show because you then go. you've got mom and dad got to come and, and then grandma and grandpa got to come and all the brothers and sisters got to come. So one party, yep. one kid, you've got 10 people who are buying tickets. Put a hundred of those in there. I got a thousand tickets sold right now. <laughs> but yeah, that, oh my God, that crucifixion scene. So yeah, it would be far enough away where you could see them laying him down on the cross. And mm -hmm. it was an actual wooden cross. So when they are hammering the nails into his hands and feet, they're actually hammering right next to his actual hands. So you Ugh. can hear the hammer hit the wood. And every time he just cries out in pain and you're like, Oh, whoa. Okay. And I'm looking around and there's tons of kids watching this too. And I'm like, Ooh, okay. This is a, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we read about it in like Sunday school and stuff, but you're looking at it. That's what happened. Ooh. Right? <laughs> yeah. Then they lift him up on the cross. You know, he says his last few words. There's some cool lighting and lightning and thunder effects, and it's really loud for a second. But on the stage is the actual rock that he's buried in. And all of the lights go down after the sound and the thunder and the lights. And the door of that rock blasts open and here's Christ standing in this heroic pose with his hand outstretched. And he's like, we're going to get some shit done right now. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> and you're like, yes, Jesus, the superhero. Yes. <laughs> it was great. It was great. And I left that thing going, man, the first couple hours of that, man, boy, but boy, they brought it back around in act three. All right. <laughs> so the passion play, the Black Hills passion play opened in May, 1939 and would play three nights each week through most of the summer. And due to its popularity and international audience, the demand grew to the point where the, it needed a winter performance space as well. Because, you know, Spearfish is in the middle of the Black Hills and gets covered in snow for a few months a year. So a new space was established in Lake Wales, Florida in 1953. And the show even toured until 1964. So we're getting, we're getting some spread here. Joseph Meyer played jesus over eight thousand times holy cow <laughs> before handing the role off to a nephew the cast still had around 250 performers and only 24 of which were professional actors so the rest of them were just volunteers from around or they they might have gotten paid something but yeah joseph meyer died in 1997 at the age of 94 the black hills passion play was last performed on august 31st 2008 yeah and i i i had some cause to drive through the black hills recently and i went i wonder if it's still there and you drive around a little bit you're like i think it might be over here and then you eventually pass it and you're like oh there it is and you can just see this huge huge stadium of empty seats (laughs) and so yeah it's still there and you you can go check it out on google maps and zoom in and see all the cool stuff if you want to cool now again I will state that the Meyer family's legacy was one of education and entertainment. So, quote, we approach our work with serious attitude. We bring to our work a sense of faith and believing. If this became a commercial cold business, the essential symbolic value would be lost. End quote. So, John. All right. I'm going to leave it to you and our listeners to determine if other passion plays in America kept up in that same vein (laughs) i mean i mean think about it like you see it don't you i mean here's this guy who just he said i think this is a great story i think more people need to hear it i'm not necessarily trying to proselytize or anything i just got a story that i think uh you know does well in a live theater environment right yeah so the first one i'm going to talk about is the great passion play in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Okay. Okay. Great passion play began in 1968 and is still running today. So very much like the Black Hills passion play, the great passion play in Eureka Springs is a multi-layered tourist attraction centered around the story of Jesus' amazing works and eventual crucifixion. Very much like the Black Hills version, it's performed in an outdoor amphitheater that can seat up to 4,000. So a little bit smaller, but still, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a bunch of tickets you can sell. Also very much like the Black Hills Passion Play, its cast is comprised of at least 150 actors, many of them being volunteers from nearby towns and cities. And it also has an impressive showcase of animals during the show. <laughs> All right. However, the one thing that sets the Great Passion Play apart from the Black Hills Passion Play is the number of attractions besides the play that a tourist can attend exit through the gift shop yeah well in a way like here i'll describe it here but um i i think what they're doing is actually really cool too okay good good one such attraction is the holy land tour which is basically like somewhat of a historic uh, historically accurate walking tour 
that uh, that has a lot of locales that represent the locations in the story of the Passion. Like they have one place that is like the the hall where the Last Supper took place. Okay, so we're all familiar we're all familiar with Da Vinci's depiction of the Last Supper, but. The great passion plays researchers have determined that the Last Supper probably took place at a table that was somewhat U-shaped and Christ seated at like the center of the U and diners would sit on mats on the floor. So yeah, so the table itself was probably no more than like two feet high. So you just like sit with your legs crossed, your legs underneath it and just kind of roll up. It's like that one, it's like that one in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where they do all the gross eating like eating the cockroaches and monkey brains. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now, the Holy Land tour also features a depiction of the Sea of Galilee, but it's funny because it's it's not a a Middle Eastern setting at all. It's a very green Arkansas setting with like just this Mm -hmm. little creek running through and they call it the Sea of Galilee. But this is where Christ is seen walking on the water. And there's another part of this tour that has Moses' tabernacle in the wilderness which includes a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Cool. All right. (laughs) Right? So you're getting all this stuff. You're like, wow, I can really see it. Okay. On the Holy Land tour, visitors even get to tour a recreation of a typical Middle Eastern marketplace from the time of Jesus and tour a replica of the inn where Joseph and Mary sought accommodation on the night that Jesus was born in the stable. So, so they're mock-ups, but there are people like they're dressed in the garb. They're talking to you like you're just a right. passer through, right? There's also now an even more immersive Holy Land tour, courtesy of virtual reality headsets. Ooh, I didn't think about that. All yeah, right. you've got this whole group of people just sitting in a room with an Oculus on and trying not to run into each other. And all of this is claimed to be historically accurate. All right. I they, I couldn't see how they backed that up. They just said, we've done our research. <laughs> now, visitors can also see the art museum and attend sessions in the wilderness tab- uh, tabernacle taught by a Levitican priest in the vein of the teachings of Moses. So even more of that immersive wow. meta experience. Yeah. And of course, there is the gift shop where visitors can buy DVDs of the performance, as well as apparel and all manners of swag and souvenirs. <laughs> all right. See, yeah, yeah, you had it, you had the idea, but you know, it's a it's a marketable thing. Like you have swag, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Uh, once upon a time, I had swag, and sometimes I have swag. Uh, I haven't right. found that I've needed to see me on a coffee mug in a while. So maybe, <laughs> maybe now that the world is reopened, you, I'll go space balls and, and just have my name and likeness on uh, a matter of things. <laughs> I'll leave your listeners to decide if they want to see that. There we happen. go. Yeah. We'll send, we'll yeah. send out a poll. We'll send out a poll. Now, in addition to all of this, visitors can eat in the great hall buffet, pulled pork, ribs, chicken, a full salad bar and dessert bar, which can accommodate up to 300 diners before each performance. Boy, howdy. (laughs) All right. Southern cooking. There on the website, you can see videos. They have one guy who um, did a promotional video back in the 90s, and they've taken small clips of him and put it on YouTube. So in one video, he's like talking about, um, oh, here's the tabernacle with the uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and a couple other things that are authentic or like authentic replicas. That's a great sure. like 
Yeah. Um, but, and, and he's showing like how uh, David might've used the sling to kill Goliath. So he's showing you how all of this is done. But then in the next video, <laughs> he's talking about this great hall buffet and just keeps talking about the homestyle cooking and all kinds of drinks that they have. And I'm like, I'm sure it's just, they, they contracted with Coca-Cola or something. And yeah. Um, yeah. But Current rates uh, for the Great Hall Buffet are $16.95 for adults, $15.99 for ages 12 to 16, and $9.99 for ages 4 to 11. That's half the price of the Vegas buffets. I know! <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that is that's a, a biblical deal. <laughs> of epic proportions. And something tells me you get to leave with some sort of commemorative cup that will live in your, oh. uh, your kitchen for years to come. I would imagine. Yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. and above all, when seated in the audience, all audience members get a clear view of Christ of the Ozarks, another feature overseen by the company in charge of the play. Christ of the Ozarks is a 67 foot tall concrete statue standing above the town of Eureka Springs, much like the statue of Jesus in Rio de Janeiro. Visitors can even purchase rights to the nightly lighting of the statue with some sort of commemoration. A $20 donation is suggested. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I saw, it actually has been um, the subject of uh, pretty frequent vandalism. No, no. <laughs> yeah, like somebody will climb up it and, uh, you know, uh, hang a, a banner that's like uh, abortion rights now or something like that. Or, okay. You know, kids will just spray paint the feet of Jesus or something like that. <laughs> so someone has to wash the jumbo feet of oh, the, uh, oh. Uh, see, that's bringing it around full circle. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, I've spoken with a good friend in theater who lives in Arkansas, and she used to attend this regularly as a kid. But as an adult who was educated in theater was very dismayed to find out that the play actually had the actors lip sync to a track during performance. Oh, no. Right? <laughs> uh. So, I mean, it's like, you're seeing the same show every time, whether you like it or not. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's a little disheartening. I mean, I, I, right? I guess I can understand some of the economy of why you do that, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh... And I think the show only runs about two and a half hours, but the great passion play for anybody who's interested runs from good Friday every year through the end of October. And according to, <laughs> I love this. According to the official website for the great passion play, the great passion play in Eureka Springs, Arkansas is quote, America's number one attended outdoor drama, according to the Institute of outdoor theater and drama of East Carolina university at Greenville. That seems official, <laughs> oddly that's, specific, that's but official. So, so many qualifiers. <laughs> I mean, at least to their credit, at least it appears to be a university not in the same city and right. probably not owned by a parent company that owns them. Right. We looked into it. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> there are a few of these that I'm going to state here that are nobody's asking for that data. So this is great. Mm.
Next one I'm going to talk about isn't going anymore either, but uh, uh, I mean, the Great Passion Play is still running. But this one is called the Mormon Miracle Pageant. Okay, That's a name. now, yeah, now you're down in Vegas, and I understand yeah. there's pretty heavy Mormon influence down there as well. A Indeed. lot of a lot of people um, have been down there. And while I was researching this, I can't remember who it was, but somebody in my theater past did a lot of theater in Vegas. And one of the shows that he did was some sort of passion play uh, in like the Vegas region. And okay. I swear to God, John, I, I looked it up and I looked it up and I couldn't find it, but I am going to quote it here that this friend of mine said that when Jesus died and is on the cross, the cross was actually lifted off the ground by a helicopter what? with the, with the actor still on it and flown out over the crowd. <laughs> I have so many questions. I, know, I mean, me on, on one end, if, 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 if that was done on the up and up, people got clearances and that actor is safe, that's amazing. And I, right? I commend them for going full Siegfried and Roy. Yeah, I was with, just gonna say, yeah. like, <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen, you know, Chris Angel, like, float over buildings and stuff like that. And yeah. I'm sure you have ideas how that's done. I didn't even bother Maybe, to think yeah. about it. I just went, that sounds amazing. I, I sure. mean, but, but the level of spectacle that they went to just yeah. for that one moment. And I can't even imagine, like, the sound of a helicopter, even if it's just a few hundred feet above you, is still deafening. And the winds. The I mean, winds. You're gonna, everything has to be sandbagged down. There will be no styrofoam containers or cups because they're gone. You're right. Leave your glasses at the at the door. Yeah. Oh man, that's but, spectacle. Uh, yeah. though. I couldn't find any evidence of that anywhere. I just remember that as some like maybe old wives' tale from my theater past. Anyway. Okay. So the Mormon miracle pageant. This depicts the uh, life and ministry of Joseph Smith in the 1820s in the Burned Over District of upstate New York. Do you know anything about the Burned Over District? Well, uh, using context clues, being the mentalist that I am, I'm going to take a swing of a guess that there might have been, I don't know, a fire? Uh, you'd think so. Or it could be a name. It could be a family name. Here's, here's what that term actually means. Hit me. It In the 1820s, all of upstate New York, pretty much everybody was affiliated with some church or another. Okay. So there were no other people to convert. Therefore, it's burned over. There's nothing left. Ah. <laughs> so missionaries would go there and everybody's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm already affiliated with one, but thanks for trying. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's such a funny name. So this Mormon miracle pageant was performed on the South Lawn of the temple in, I, I think I looked it up as Manti, Utah. It's a small little town, okay. maybe like 3,700 people. Over the two-week pageant, which began in the end of June, the production would entertain up to 15,000 attendees per night. Holy cow. <laughs> They would all sit on chairs on the South Lawn that had been put up by volunteers, and the show would be taking place on a hill in front of them. Okay. So, but I, like, those people out there, six o'clock in the morning, yeah, 
15,000. All right, let's get started. And I mean, <laughs> I, I read some, some reports on the, on the actual website and they're like, yeah, we're just amazed by our volunteers. They come up and do this and all they get out of it is a donut. <laughs> That's, that is, that is faith in the cause. Absolutely. To them. Yep. Now this was discontinued in 2019 after 52 years of performance. There was apparently too much controversy surrounding the church, the event, and its political standings, etc. Like the okay. churches, churches stand on abortion, and and uh, you know it still has it, like uh, you know I I know there are people out there who still believe that uh, the Mormon Church practices polygamy, and the Mormon Church even says no, we don't do that anymore. But it still was somewhere in its past, and therefore people go, sure. well, you, you did it once. <laughs> I mean, what I read was there would be people who would like, as attendees are just driving in to get parked, they would have like anti-Mormon shirts and hold anti-Mormon placards. And then on the other side of the street is, is the other faction, the ones that are like pro-Mormon and pro-signs uh, and everything. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, the, the church elders kind of went, hey, you know, maybe we should stop doing the play. <laughs> it's a bummer but we had a good run um next one the promise in glen rose texas oh man this is great i've got hopes for this one i've got high hopes hey not just a clever name uh in 1984 a group of musicians clergymen and wealthy texas businessmen wanted to establish a new passion play that would be set in a large outdoor amphitheater and would be the story of the passion but interspersed with songs from 90s Christian or 80s and 90s Christian rock and pop music. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we're getting some of those like really driving, you know, hard hitting stuff, but you know, still, still very Christian. Uh, the result was the promise and it is exactly what it set out to be a Christian pop jukebox, jukebox musical but not entirely. It did have some original songs for the purpose of telling this story. But yeah, we had, uh, you know, take any name from any popular Christian rock artist, they probably put a song in there. Um, the amphitheater can seat up to 5,000 attendees and has a cast of over 170 people. Jeez, these are huge. Um, That's now, massive. This is great. Separating the audience from the stage is a 45,000 gallon moat, which is actually used for specific scenes in the show. <laughs> that was some, a meeting was had for that. And they said, you know what we need? A, mo- a moat. Right. How are we uh, going to do uh, crossing the river Jordan without a moat? How are uh, we going to show that Jesus walks on water without a moat? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The uh, someone had to have known somebody that was a uh, uh, had massive, massive equipment, <laughs> or, or there was just one guy who's an investor, and he's like, "Uh, you know what this show needs is a moat." There's like, uh, "No, George, uh, yeah, George, I don't think we need a moat." And he's like, "I'm gonna put down a lot of money for this show, and I'll be damned if there's not a moat in the show." <laughs> 
you're like okay i guess i guess we're putting in a moat okay that's it's a... gonna be water world but <laughs> yes the water world stunt spectacular yeah. <laughs> but jesus is the hero all right uh now the official website for the play brags that the amphitheater is the only outdoor theater in the united states to feature a moat <laughs> Uh, well, if if you're gonna if you're gonna have it, you might as well pull on it. Hey, nobody else has got one, huh? Yeah. And this is actually kind of interesting for those of you who are uh, technical theater people. It's the only outdoor theater in the nation to use a rain curtain. So there's like the scene with the storms and everything that that they yeah. actually have rain fall into that moat. Wow. Yeah, so it's a really effective thing. And you hear the sound of the water hitting the water, and it's really cool. Um, now, here's another uh, fun little bragging point that they, that they list here. It also brags that the building is the oldest amphitheater in Central Texas. <laughs> okay. Okay, they built another one over in Houston that can seat 7,000 people. We're no longer the biggest, but we are the oldest. <laughs> Everybody gets something. Everybody gets something. <laughs> we are the only amphitheater that features unisex restrooms that nobody uses. <sighs> now, check this out. This is actually kind of cool. It also has gone on tour, being the first passion play from America to be performed in Russia. It's okay, also- that, that, that is really cool. That is really cool. It's also toured in Seoul, South Korea and ran in Branson, Missouri for some time. Oh, Branson. A YouTuber named The Day Tripper stopped to see the performance and said the spectacle of the show rivals anything you'd see on Broadway or in Branson. That's, That's a great qualifier. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Tickets range from $27 to $50, but attendees who can prove they are full-time clergy are treated to free admission. Oh, good for them. Yeah. The promise usually only runs around Easter each year. Okay. So we got this big outdoor theater with a moat. So that's coming up, gang. Anybody wants to go to that? That's, that's on its way here. Head on down. And here's my last one I'm going to talk about. Okay. And actually, I think I need to pause for a second because I want to send you something. Okay. Okay. Now, don't open this here for a second because I I, I, I I want to describe this to you real quick. All right. The thorn in Colorado Springs, Colorado, is often described as the passion of the Christ meets Cirque du Soleil. Okay. Okay. So I want you to go ahead and watch that video now. And right. uh, when you're done, we'll go ahead and uh, resume. And I want you to tell me what it looks like. Here, I will. I will. Oh, have oh, this yeah. running. Okay. Yep. I get a reaction video out of this. There we go. Um, there's pyro, <laughs> aerialists, and parkour. The lighting looks great. Yeah. This looks to be a, a massive cast. Yeah. Costumes look pretty cool. Oh, there's a battle. All right. And Jesus won. Spoiler alert. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All right. Tickets available at thethorn.net. Yep. Now, 
I would I would say that uh, description of the Passion of the Christ meets Cirque du Soleil was probably pretty accurate from that video. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You're seeing aerialists. You're seeing pyro. You're seeing great fight choreography. This is something. Like, this would be really something to go see. Okay? Yeah. Uh, it was created by husband and wife youth pastors, John and Sarah Bolin, to give audiences a, quote, relevant retelling of the meta-narrative of the Bible, end quote, mm. okay? It's designed to play in large indoor stadiums and has been played for audiences of 20,000 or more. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and it takes wow. the... It takes the nature of the immersive theater experience from the great passion play that one in Arkansas where you can like visit different locations and talk to people who are in the environment. It injects radioactive steroids into it. Cool. One thing I saw about it was a guy took his girlfriend to it. And from the moment they walked in, they were greeted by Roman centurions who grabbed the woman by the wrist and demanded from the guy to know if he could legitimately claim ownership of that woman. What? Yep. I'm like, ah, in a COVID, uh, post-COVID environment, are we still grabbing people? Like, in 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 a in a world of consent, are we? Yeah, yeah. So they were able to get away and get into the theater. Mm. Yeah. Now, during the performance, the show has only one character who speaks to the audience. This is the narrator, the disciple Thomas. Okay. Who is relaying the story from his, not really from his point of view, but he's just kind of he's kind of your guide. He begins the show with a five-minute ice-breaking monologue <laughs> describing the weight of the story you're about to see. As for the rest of the show, here's a quote. As a sensory experience, The Thorn is an impressive exhibition of choreographed dances, pyrotechnics, acrobatics, and multimedia stage production. Sitting in the front row, we have to shield our eyes when the jet engine style flames roar 20 feet into the air. The bass from the music rumbles our bellies and I uncontrollably <laughs> exclaim, Jesus Christ, when an unexpected explosion <laughs> catches me off guard. <laughs> oh. oh, man. But I guess, All right. I guess outside of Thomas, nobody else in the show speaks. That's pretty cool. Right? So it is all done in kind of like a Cirque idea. You're getting a story mm -hmm. in a way, but it's all through body movement and, you know, uh, dance and, and how the, you know, trapeze artists are flipping themselves into the air and stuff, you know? So <laughs> just amazing. Now, I will say that the show is also pretty graphic in its depiction, mainly just to show how intense the story of Christ would be. Fair enough. I mean, you saw it in that trailer. Yeah. Christ literally flips the table over in the temple to chase out those who would defame it. Yeah. And then he's captured. He's tortured and tried. It's nowhere near the scale of the film, The Passion of the Christ, which many just consider torture porn anymore. But seeing that stuff live is a pretty visceral experience. Sure. The official website for the show recommends that parents take precaution for children under 12. And that's got to be heavy, not only seeing seeing that level of production. Oh, man. And, and that kind of visceral nature, but doing it in front of 20,000 people, right. you know, that's, that's its own thing. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean you know, just the size of the motions that you have to do to like 
crack a whip across Jesus' back. Sure. So you can have the people in the nosebleed seats understand what you're doing. That's a huge deal. So, yeah. uh, (laughs) Now, just before Christ is crucified, the following happens. Quote, Thorn creator John Bolin interrupts the narrative, walking on stage with a microphone to directly ask the audience to, quote, consider the sacrifice of Jesus. Syrupy piano music plays over his speech while he talks about how our sins have, quote, earned us death, but Jesus paid the price. So this happens right before the thing, okay? All right. He then directs the audience. Like, he talks about all these things, like, many of you have come here for some sort of answer. You know, you might be suffering from an addiction or a relationship that's not working, or you're losing your faith in the world or or something. So he then directs the audience to the sides of the stage on the floor where grief counselors wait to speak to audience members, and a lot of people take them up on that. Wait, what? Yep. (laughs) I mean, I didn't see it coming. I'm not a, a, like, people need help, then connecting them to help's awesome, but that's out of left field. That's out of left and right field. I mean. (laughs) And they do. They do. They're like, yep, now's my time. And they go down and, you know, I don't know how long they get to talk to somebody or, you know, if, if it's just a thing where they have people from the area who are grief counselors just saying, here's my card, give me a call when you want to sit down and talk more or something like that. But wow. Right. (laughs) And then the show continues. When you first described this, I was, uh, I don't want to say put off, but a little confused because you're, you're going through this, you know, pretty heavy, uh, intense stuff. And yeah. then pause, I assume, no pun intended, but voice of God comes on and goes, please welcome. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just like guy in non-period street clothes, like, hi, how y'all doing? <laughs> Having a good time? It just seems like an odd break, but as you went on, it makes more sense. To like a very tender effect though. It's like, we're about to watch something okay. like the, we're about to watch the end result here. Okay. We're, sure. we know, we know what's going to happen here. And a lot of you might've been brought to the point of, you know, like you're right at that moment of the purgation of emotion that we're going to see. Sure. So now that you're in this very tender and fragile state, Maybe there's something we can do to help you out with that even further. Cool. Yeah. And it, you know, as, as, uh, and I, I have known nothing about any of these until you've mentioned them. As long as everything's on the up and up, that is very cool and good on them. Right. Right. Now, the thorn also usually only plays during Easter week on an annual basis. And for those who would like to stream the show in 2022, tickets can be purchased for the April 10th performance for $20. That's reasonable. While you're at the official website, you can then visit the official store for the Thorn, where you can purchase apparel like t-shirts and hoodies, and if you spend up to $99, you'll get free shipping. Wow. And that, John, is the story of Passion Plays in America today. That has come a long, a long, <laughs> long way <Wow>. from uh, <laughs> going back to uh, Oberammergau. Right? In... Uh, Back in the day, that's Whew. that's something. I had an aunt who went to Oberammergau, and I was going to call her before I got to this episode, but I'll have to still call her anyway. I wanted her to tell me about it, and through text, all she said was, 
it was brilliant. It was heartbreaking. It was incredibly emotional, but it was beautiful. And cool. I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, even for those who, for those who might not be as spiritual, seeing somebody sacrifice himself for complete strangers, even people he will never meet, like mm-hmm. that's a that's a that's a heart wrenching story to watch. Yeah, or, I mean, I mean, depending on how they do it, you know, if a guy just comes out and is like, "Yep, take me," and they take him off, and you're like. <laughs> Okay. But if they actually make you care about the person and everything, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's how you do it. You're using the art of theater to absolutely get to the heart of what theater is meant for, or at least according to Greek and Romans, uh, you know, to educate and entertain. Yeah. But man, like the scale of some of these things. Helicopter crucifix, a moat, and uh-huh. Cirque du Soleil. When I went to see the Black Hills Passion play, I was like 16, 17. And I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't really impressed with the production of it up until the, we started getting to the crucifixion and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I remember there was one scene where it had to be just the thing where you see all the camcorders in the house ratchet up on people's shoulders because mm. their fam- this is the point where their family member is coming out and we're going to see him in authentic middle eastern clothing and like 150 people run from one side of the stage to the other following sheep and goats and some guys yanking a camel down the whole thing (laughs) and and it went on for about four minutes and i was like that's a painfully long piece of theater (laughs) yeah (laughs) can you imagine being the stage manager for that Oh, no, uh-uh, uh-uh, you know, uh, no, no. I mean, at that point, if you lost 10 people, you wouldn't know it. <laughs> Where are the Rileys? I don't know. Nope. But geez, like, in in the fact that there's so many attendees, like, that, mm-hmm. that's, that's impressive, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're big, big, big old shows, and some of them might be better than others, I mean, I, I looked at some clips from both The Great Passion Play and The Promise, and it was like, well, that's pretty cheesy. <laughs> but they make up for it with, like, we have a moat, or I'm going to shoot a guy out of a cannon, and he's going to land in a grave. You're going to pay for the whole seat, but you're only going to need the edge. That is a perfect place to end. Uh, <laughs> John, thank you. Uh, I hope you were enriched by uh, the stories of the passion plays and I love what Americans have done to them. (laughs) Uh, Agreed. Aaron, thank you for, for having me, for schooling me up on some of the wild and crazy and awesome ways that we've taken uh, a story that's been around a hot minute and found a way to, to make it contemporary and and powerful and hopefully do some good with it. Yep. Yep. And if not, you can at least get the t-shirt. Okay. There you go. My friends and listeners, this is the end. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, ending this episode of Euripides Humanities. We'll see you back here in another two weeks with another episode. I'll see you at intermission.